Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I'm Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. And I'm Doug McCullough with the Lone Star Policy Institute. Our guest today is J.D. Vance, uh, who is the best-selling author of Hillbilly LG and the uh, co-founder of a technology investment firm called Narya. Uh, so welcome to the program, J.D. Thanks. Good to talk with you guys. You recently published an article in the American Mind called In the Globalization Gravy Train, which is going to be the subject of the conversation or the jumping off point for the conversation today. Uh, this is an article that has provoked a lot of controversy. In fact, I I, I think it's fair to say that there's even a fair amount of just different reactions to it among uh, the, the co-hosts of the Urbane Cowboys. So maybe <laughs> you could begin by just giving a summary of, uh, of the, you know, what's the gist of this article and what you were saying? Yeah, so it's it's long and I it's one of those things where I started writing it intending it to be 700 words and it ended up about, about three or four times as long as that. And the, the basic idea is that in the context of this whole coronavirus thing, I'm, I'm worried that the conversation about lockdowns and when to end these shelter in place orders is is relatively uh, distracting from a much bigger and longer term question about what, what do we do about an economy that I think wasn't working especially well for a large segment of Americans. And I think especially uh, was attached to the rise of China. What I mean is that uh, whether through financial firms who were betting on the rise of China or a lot of major companies that were in some ways benefiting from very cheap costs um, in, in the Chinese economy, there were a lot of people who were very invested in the rise of China. And I think to solve a lot of our economic problems, we have to decouple from China. But doing that in an environment where a lot of people are making a lot of money is hard because, as, as I think you guys know, a lot of our elite institutions are in, in one form or another funded or supported by the same people who I think who have benefited from the rise of Beijing. And so uh, I think the broader point is that if we want to decouple from China, which I think will require making some pretty tough and complicated decisions, we actually need institutions to design the policies. We need donors who are supporting the candidates who are going to enact those policies. And that does require, I think, at least some segment of the donor class to recognize that if you're going to, to support those things, it, it's going to ultimately hit you in the pocketbook. And so the, the sort of um, subtext of the article, it's, it's really aimed at, at donors, folks that I know, people who I, you know, some people who I admire and some people who, frankly, I don't to get them to, to recognize that if they're invested in the rise and the long-term success of the country, uh, I think that they need to be willing to support people, think tank fellows, magazines, and eventually politicians who are pointing a much different direction than what the GOP has has gone down uh, for the past 30 or 40 years. And that's, you know, as quickly as I can do, that's the summary of the piece. Yeah. So uh, obviously there's, there's a couple of components there. Uh, one is, you know, kind of, Kind of more broadly, it has been a little fascinating to see uh, the extent to which a number of uh, U.S. In, in industries and institutions have become so dependent on China. I think, you know, we sort of saw that last year with the whole NBA response to the Hong Kong protests, uh, where suddenly it seemed that, you know, uh, not only did they not have 
free speech in China to criticize their government. But in the United States, you know, people who wanted to criticize the actions of the Chinese government, you know, ended up getting fired or uh, shut down in various in various ways. Um, the universities also, right, that's another thing where it turns out, yeah, and this was, this was, I guess, a little bit of an open secret, but it turns out a lot of universities are very de- dependent on tuition from Chinese national students or other foreign students. You know, you obviously do focus a little bit on the conservative movement, the GOP, there, there again, there does seem to be kind of a disconnect between what the average typical base Republican voter thinks about issues relating to China and trade globalization, and what the donors who are funding the candidates and the activist groups and the think tanks do. So I mean, and, and that's so, so two quick reactions to that. You know, one, the, the Hong Kong protest NBA issue, all of us were talking about it, it seemed like, I don't know, was it months ago or years ago? I, I don't even have a good sense of time anymore. But that was one of the first sort of wake up moments for me, not on the China issue, I've sort of been a China hawk for a very long time, but in recognizing how genuinely wrapped up some of our core American institutions were in in the rise of China. And, you know, a lot of people were complaining about Steve Kerr, about LeBron James, like, why aren't these guys criticizing the Chinese Communist Party? And it sort of hit me that a, a lot of us have not grown up in a world where an economic institution should be doing anything other than satisfying or playing to the American consumer. Like we've always lived in a world where the American consumer and the American economy is king. And in that world, there is a lot of overlap between traditional, what I would call sort of 1980s Republican market economics and the national interest. But it, when you have a country like China, which I think of as a sort of a hyper-capitalist economy that's doing very well, that's in some ways overtaking us in, in terms of, or at least looks like it's about to overtake us in some measures of purchasing power, then core economic institutions don't necessarily have to rely on America in the same way. And in fact, it made a lot of financial sense for Steve Kerr and LeBron James to sort of, you know, take it and, and to let the Chinese say what they were going to say and, and do what they were going to do. And that was a that was a pretty depressing realization to me that these guys were making a rational economic calculation. The NBA was making a rational economic calculation, even though I think a lot of patriotic Americans were very frustrated and offended by it. And then, you know, to, to your point about, you know, the, the sort of disconnect between Republican base voters and a lot of the elite conservative institutions, I, I think that the point that I'm really trying to make is what is the Overton window for different populations within the conservative movement? And one of the things I've, I've realized, and I sort of didn't expect to feel like this a few years ago, but is, is that the Overton window on a lot of these big questions about how to pursue economic policy going forward, what to do about China, what to do about globalization trade, what to do about immigration, that the Overton window among the base is actually much wider. The the range of acceptable opinions among the base is actually much wider than it is in certain institutions, primarily within Washington. And And I do at a fundamental level think, and I think there's a lot of political science evidence to support this, but I do think that's fundamentally a product of donor influence. I don't think it's irrational. I don't think it's un, unreasonable for the donors to pursue their own economic interests. But it, but again, in a world where pursuing your economic interest is no longer pursuing the American interest and there isn't a total overlap, I think we have to ask ourselves whether the donors pursuing their economic interests is, is 
you know, still in the interests of conservative priorities and still in the interests of the country. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I appreciate you saying that there was a that there was a, a lot of subtext in the piece because I thought it there, it there there was it was quite a lot of subtext. Um, and in that sense, if I might offer a critique, if if the argument is for decoupling from China, that is one that I'm at least from my perspective, at least willing to hear a, a viewpoint on and a strategic thought about. But I didn't really feel like the, the this piece necessarily really went into that. There's a lot of what you call subtext. And for instance, for me, I'm you know, I'm old enough that I remember the 80s, even though I was quite young and. I remember a time when there was this, you know, this coalition, this conservative movement that was, as you call it, fusionism, which is a good term. Um, And and in my mind, that fusionism uh, coalition was a a preference for free markets, is a preference for ordered liberty, a preference for limited government. And I don't see anything wrong with that. And I don't think that there's anything that inherently puts us on poor footing to deal with China, because I would say it was that Reagan coalition, that conservative movement that actually won the Cold War. So is there something that you think that is inherently weak about this type of Reagan-esque approach that is, you know, prefers free trade, prefers free enterprise, um, prefers limited government? Is there something that you think is actually weak about that? I mean, because again, you know, I, I hear occasionally talk about free market fundamentalists, but even in the case of Ronald Reagan, uh, you know, it wasn't straight down the line free trade. Is was there something about this approach? Do you think that this this movement is weak? I mean, you say that you want to thrust a dagger in the heart of the Heritage Foundation. What is it about? this approach that you find offensive or weak? Well, I, I, th- I think that I, I said I wanted to thrust a dagger into the old consensus. I don't have any specific gripe with the Heritage Foundation. I even think, um, you know, a, a couple of folks there are, are doing um, very interesting things. I, I point to David Azarad, though I guess D- David just left the Heritage Foundation. But 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 I'll give a sort of general answer to your question, then I'll, I'll give a specific answer vis-a-vis China. So the general answer to your question is, I, I do think that while... The 1980s Reagan coalition and Reagan set of ideas was a reasonable set of answers to the questions posed by the 1980s. I, I don't necessarily think that it's a reasonable set of answers posed to posed by the, the, the 2020s. And so, a specific instance of that, I, I think, is is the China issue and is the emphasis on trade. And you know, specifically, the the basic theory of of free trade uh, that I, I sort of reproduced. Uh, you know, picking on on Milton Friedman a little bit, trying to you know, always always try to to criticize up if you're going to criticize anybody. And you know, Friedman makes this argument that effectively consumer goods, consumer items that we get from trade are always and everywhere a benefit. In fact, he doesn't even see it as a cost of trade. He sees it as the benefit of trade. And I think that that seeing consumer items that are coming into your country purely as benefits is is very much, I think, a 1980s mindset in something that hasn't survived an encounter uh, with the past 30 or 40 years. And so, you know, a, a point that I make in the piece is that, you know, we'd rather have jobs than we would cheap consumer goods. And I think one of the trades that we've made vis-a-vis the Chinese over the past 30 years is that the Chinese would subsidize a very large amount of the inputs 
in basic economic production, especially you know labor costs, um, transportation costs, and so forth. And in in exchange, we would sort of you know not always, but largely keep our hands off of our own um, out of subsidizing our own productivity or penalizing incoming goods uh, from China. And so we would allow the, those sort of cost subsidies from the Chinese to come over to our economy in the form of cheaper goods. Well, no, I was going to say, I, I think if I, if I read your piece correctly, Friedman is talking there in the context of Japan, and you're making this argument in the broader context of an argument about China. And uh, I would argue that those two situations are very different. You know, so in the sense of someone like me, who is a fundamentally a free trader, who has a preference for free trade, I might look at a situation where maybe we have a trade deficit with the European Union or Japan. And I think that that may be fundamentally different than what's happening with China. Do you think that there's a distinction there versus specific acts of pot- potential wrongdoing versus simply we have a trade deficit? Because I think at times from this administration, there's sort of this willy nilly approach that everybody's been treating us badly if there's merely a trade deficit. Do you see a difference there between a trade deficit versus you know particular wrongdoing? Well, I, I would definitely draw a distinction between worrying about bilateral trade deficits, meaning country to country versus the broad national account. And the, and, and the fact is the national account deficit, I, I do think, is a, is a real problem. It, it's a fundamentally a, a basic accounting problem to me. I mean, if, if you are consuming more than you produce, then you have to borrow to pay for that consumption. Uh, the money has to come from somewhere. And so I think that as, as a general matter of economics, as, as a, you know, whether it's a government or a household, a national level viewpoint, we should be trying to consume at some equal level to what we make. Now that doesn't concern bilateral trade deficits. I don't. I wouldn't say that I especially care whether we have a big trade deficit vis-a-vis China, or excuse me, a big trade deficit vis-a-vis Japan or Western Europe. I think that each particular question matters. Uh, meaning you might worry more about a bilateral trade deficit with China because it's a global competitor than you do with France because it's not a global competitor. It's more of an ally. Um, but but I, I wouldn't say that it's the trade deficit as such. It's sort of the trade deficit in the context of other concerns. And and the worry with, with China, and, and, and the reason why I think that Friedman's argument, and, and I think there's a lot of evidence for this, that Friedman's argument that receiving cheap consumer items uh, was not fundamentally a problem is, you know, yes, that argument was applied in the 1970s about Japan, but it also influenced a lot of policymakers in thinking about China. And you even saw in the late 90s and the early 2000s, oh, the people who are worried about China, they're making the same arguments that people made about Japan in the 70s and 80s. It's just as dumb then, or just as dumb now as it was then. And so I do think that ideology that getting consumer goods is always and everywhere a good thing did actually infect and, 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 and affect our trade relations with China in a way that didn't ultimately make sense. And I think the, the point that, that is most important to me here is that you can't just have economy an economy built around consumption. Um, set aside the fact that you have to effectively borrow to subsidize that consumption if you're not producing. I, I think that, you know, and this is admittedly a very Christian producerist way to think about the world, that you want people who actually can make things and build things and not just consume things. And I think a story, I'd point to David Autor's work. He's an economist who's written about 
the China shock. And his basic argument is that if you look at areas of the country that were most exposed to Chinese trade competition, you see skyrocketing abuse, skyrocketing divorce. Uh, you see the opioid epidemic starting to take root. And the basic idea is that when you take the economic core out of these, these places, you can replace it with consumption. You can replace it with all the consumer goods you're getting as a benefit of free trade. But unless you recognize that there are real costs to people you know, losing their jobs, there are real costs to losing. I think it's 7 million manufacturing jobs that we lost to China uh, from the late 90s to the mid 2000s, that it could have just this incredibly powerful effect on the social fabric, on all the things that I care about as a social conservative. Um, and, and this, by the way, is, is one of the things that I, I, I was trying to get at in, in the piece is I think that we often talk about decoupling from China without appreciating that there are real costs to it. I mean, it's nice to be able to go and buy an iPhone for the, the price that we do. It's nice to be able to get a big, beautiful flat screen television. I have one in my house. I think a lot of people have one in their house for the cost that we do. Uh, and and I, I think that it is worth emphasizing that if we decouple from China, a lot of things that we use in our houses today are going to get more expensive. But I think the benefit is we're going to have more stuff made in America. We're going to have healthier economies and local social lives. And we're also going to have, importantly, the ability uh, to make critical national products when you know, a global pandemic hits uh, and we don't have to always rely on China or on somebody else. I've got a few issues there. One is that this is a there's a you're putting a strong preference on manufacturing and that you really cast shade at the knowledge economy. And I know for myself personally, I'm my dad. He worked at Amtrak in the machine shop repairing trains and I ended up going to law school. I'm part of that knowledge economy. I chose not just because I thought that I would make more money, but because I didn't want to work in a machine shop. I didn't want to work in a factory. So, I mean, I, I, I don't really, you know, I don't understand where the, the negative views of the knowledge economy is, but also on the manufacturing side, you, you make a comment that sound, makes it sound like that we're not manufacturing in this country, but our manufacturing product productivity is actually up. And if I'm not mistaken, like about a year ago, we had as many people doing manufacturing jobs in the U.S. as we did 70 years ago. So so what am I missing? Is it, is it that we should be, is the real problem not China, but maybe too much automation? What, I'm, I'm not really being sold on this because I don't see that the data is backing this up. So a couple of, I'll try to address those. I mean, so one on the knowledge economy point, I'm not anti-knowledge economy. I think you have to have some knowledge economy workers. You know, I went to law school. I run an investment fund. I'm sort of a classic knowledge economy worker, but I don't think you can have only knowledge economy jobs and service sector jobs. And that, that is, I think it's an oversimplification, but it is directionally true that we have a large amount of the American workforce, basically the upper class working in knowledge economy jobs and the lower class working in service sector jobs. And, and the fact that we don't have a more viable manufacturing sector that can apply, well, that can both make things but also create good jobs for people in the middle is, is I think, a problem. And I, you know, I'm happy to talk about in, in some greater detail why I think that's a problem. But to, to answer your two specific questions, so one, uh, manufacturing output is certainly at or near highs if you measure in absolute terms. 
if you measure relative to GDP, which I think is the most important way to think about this, it's, it's relative to the broader economy. I believe that we're at an all-time low in measures of real GDP, and I know that we're at measures that we're at an all-time low in, in terms of nominal GDP. And I think that even that actually overstates how much manufacturing is happening in the United States because so much of our basic measures of manufacturing output actually incorporate um, effectively the hardware sector into the American economy. So if you separate basically Moore's law and rising computing, if you take out uh, the, the, the sort of the computer hardware segment of American manufacturing, you, you basically have real stagnation pretty much across the board. And it's great that we can manufacture computers, but again, you can't build a modern manufacturing economy just on one single product. I think, frankly, the Chinese have done this much better where they've pursued a broad spectrum strategy to have manufacturing in multiple different industries, multiple different verticals. And then the last point um, that you made about manufacturing employment being at its high or sorry, being higher now than it was 70 years ago. I don't know that number. I don't doubt that it's true. Um, but, I, you know, the population of the United States 70 years ago was was probably, what, 40 percent of what it was. And so I, I don't think the question is, again, what is it in absolute terms, but what is it relative to the size of the economy that we have, the population that we have? And I think there's a really overwhelming case to be made that both measured in actual output and in employment, we're not doing nearly as well now as we were 30 years ago. Let me ask, let me go back to the issue of the disconnect uh, in the conservative movement and in the G GOP between the base and the donors. Um, you know, to have a successful political movement and de democracy, you need to have uh, voters and you need to have money, right? <laughs> uh, no. Kind of symbiotic. And um, it, there does seem to be, uh, you know, if there, if there is a disconnect between uh, what the voters want and what the donors want, uh, it does seem like that's a, not a sustainable thing in the long term. So, so you know, something's got to give. Either, either we need uh, a new people, right, or we need uh, a new donor base for the conservative movement. So, you know, how, how do you see that resolving and how could it resolve in, you know, how, how could you end up with a conservative, you know, if you say, okay, the problem is with the donors, they're too uh, wedded to globalization, free trade, other things like that. What could you replace them with where, you know, you would have a successful political movement going forward in the country? Yeah, it's a, it's a fair question. I'm reminded of, of something, a, a good friend of mine, a you know, big, big GOP donor um, who, who agrees with me on some of these issues and disagrees with me on others. You know, he had this very insightful way of putting it that you know, in, in the 1980s, the GOP coalition was effectively a priest, a millionaire and a general, meaning it was the business class. It was national security hawks and it was social conservatives. And he said that the, the problem is they all hated the same thing back then, right? It's become a bit of a cliche if you talk about the conservative movement, but they all hated the Soviet Union back then. They all wanted to defeat it for different reasons, but they all wanted to defeat it. And now what is the thing that keeps the businessman, uh, the priest, and the general in the same coalition? And, and, and one way of thinking about my entire argument is, is that my argument is that maybe the general and maybe the priest have the same views vis-a-vis -vis China. But it's not totally clear that the businessman does anymore, especially 
the sort of higher end multinational corporations, the people who are doing very, very well in the modern economy. I have for, you know, a, a few years, I know, you know, Josiah, some of our mutual friends have worried about this for much longer, have, have worried about the fact that some of the core GOP priorities, you know, things that were very popular, let's say in the 1980s, even among the GOP base are just not popular anymore. I think the most obvious example of this is 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 tax cuts. And, you know, I, I remember sitting in a conference and someone telling me that a majority of GOP primary voters in 2016, a majority of GOP primary voters supported higher taxes on the wealthy, not tax cuts, not keeping taxes the same, but higher taxes on the wealthy. And when I heard that, I actually didn't believe it. I said that that can't possibly be true. And I looked at the data, it was something like 64% of the GOP primary electorate wanted higher taxes on the wealthy. Now, whatever you think about higher taxes on the wealthy, it, it is a little bit weird that you have that base existing with all of the institutional dynamics that exist in the conservative movement. And, and I think, unfortunately, as, as you know, powerful as popular resentment can be, and we certainly saw uh, no major GOP institution that I can think of was supportive of Donald Trump's nomination, but of course he, he won it in, in a, walk up, a walk away. If you compare that to the actual governing priorities of, of the Trump administration, I mean, you know, the main, I would say, domestic policy win of the Trump administration is a tax reform agenda that a lot of GOP voters, I mean, people that I know, certainly if you look at the polling, weren't exactly happy with. And I think the institutional explanation for that is pretty simple. You know, you had all of the, the same staffers, Hill, Hill folks, think tank folks who were pushing a particular piece of legislation that was sort of borrowed from the Reagan and Gingrich eras, um, and that became law. But what do you do when people start getting frustrated with that stuff as I think they already are? I mean, I, I don't necessarily know the answer, but you know, one of the arguments that I'm trying to make is that you know, the donors should shift a little bit in the direction of the base. While I don't know the answer to the question of how you keep the coalition together, I think it depends a little bit on the donors shifting a little bit in the direction of the base. And I think consequently, the, the policy mix that the GOP focused on would be different. And so you know, my, my sense is that where this goes, even if it's messy, even if it's a little clunky, even if you have you know, some upper middle class suburbanites going to the Democratic Party, some more working class voters shifting to the Republican Party, that where this ends up is uh, with, with the GOP as sort of a long-term populist party in the country. That, that's my best guess. That's obviously very different than what it was 30 or 40 years ago. I can also see an argument that, that other things will happen and that things will shake out in a different way. Isn't part of this, though, you, you've talked about the prior coalition as there was the, the, the warrior peace in, um, in businessman. You're, and you're somewhat nudging the, the businessman, the free market people out. Uh, isn't that reducing the size of the coalition? And how are you going to make that up beyond just the donors? How are you going to make that up in terms of, of the voting, the, the coalition? Yeah, that's a very fair question. Um, I, I don't know the answer. I'll be honest. Um, again, I, I think there's a good argument that this could, the shifts that you're seeing in American politics could ultimately result in a more centrist Democratic Party becoming a majoritarian party. Obviously, I don't want that to happen, but I think it's a possibility. Um, you know, the, the argument that I try to make is that what we'd like to see, and, 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 and maybe the closest example to this is what you've seen with the, the UK conservatives, though I can see their differences, contextual differences and so forth, is that as the UK conservatives 
have over the past five to 10 years discarded some of their, you know, London suburbanite base. They've picked up a lot of old labor voters in places like Nottingham and Yorkshire and so forth. And if you're if you're an American conservative, I think you're, or at least if you're an American conservative of my persuasion, your hope is that we can make a mathematical trade that's, that's about similar to that, that for every one voter you discard from the suburbs, you pick up 1.5 voters from the exurbs, from rural areas, you know, from the broad working class. And, and you know, when it comes to the donors, I, I think what, what I what I try to what I try to say is, you know, look, if we pursue a less globalization friendly politics, then a lot of our very wealthiest people are not going to do as well as they did in the past. But but my sense is that some donors, at least, I don't know if most of them, but some donors are willing to do that because they're just they're, they're patriotic and they don't think that the current approach to globalization is sustainable anymore. I, I point to Peter Thiel in the piece. You know, Peter Thiel, I think, knows that globalization has been relatively good for him, but he's been one of the biggest and most outfront critics of it for a very long time. And I, I think that that speaks to the fact that he actually really cares about the long-term future of the country. And I think that maybe you can make similar arguments uh, to other people, whether they're donors or just people um, who are at a different part of the political coalition. So earlier you made a comment and when I was asking you in the context of talking about Milton Friedman, we're talking about Japan versus China. And, and you conceded there's a, there's a distinction between, say, Japan and China or China and the EU. So why talk about globalization? It seems to me that there's at least an opportunity to have a to sort of get the band back together with sort of the Reagan coalition if you will, to say, we can still believe in all the things we believed in as a conservative movement, but here's why China's different. Here's why China, you, you know, in your article, you mentioned the Uyghurs, you know, there could be situations like that. There could be situations where there's trade abuses, there's uh, IP that's being stolen, things of that nature to say, there's bad actions by China specifically why don't we work through a global coalition instead of beating up on Canada and the EU and Japan? Let's actually work together and let's have a united front and let's target those particular practices and get them in line that way. And I think that there's, I, you know, I, I understand where sort of the more libertarian set might disagree with that. But if we're talking about, you know, because I see a lot of shade being cast at people uh, you know, sort of clinging to Reaganite um, ideas, which is I'm one of them. Why not reach out to people like me and say, just the same as the Soviet Union was the evil empire, we can look at the, the Chinese communists and point to all the things that they're doing. And we need to have a similar approach. If we could defeat the Soviet Union in the Cold War, why not gamble on a, a peaceful defeat of Chinese communism as opposed to casting a broad anti-globalist uh, agenda. Let me, I guess, let me make an, an argument that is, is somewhat consistent with what you just said, and then I'll, I'll push back a, a little bit. So the first thing I'll say is that I really think that the globalization question writ large is fundamentally now a China question because of how powerful China is, both its internal economy, but also the, the influence it exerts across East Asia, increasingly across Africa and other places as well. So I do think that there is there's a good argument to be made 
that instead of going after quote unquote globalization, we should just go after China. Um, you know, again, so long as we actually go after what I think are the real economic entanglements between the American business class and China, I, I would be generally sympathetic to that. I think the, the one pushback is that there is still something about globalization uh itself that, that I still do want to kind of uh, push against here. And, you know, the, the, the Japan thing that we talked about earlier is, is on point here, because while I don't think that from a bilateral perspective, Japan is anywhere near as dangerous or as threatening as China, I, I do think this broader question of the multilateral account deficit is important. Like, do we want to have, do we think about our economic future just in terms of consumption just in terms of what we're of what we're buying and and, and consuming, or, or do we think about it in terms of production too? And I think what what I'm really trying to do is introduce a more Hamiltonian argument into the modern conservative movement. You know, I think was was in some ways mainstream economics across both political parties for a very long time in this country that we can't just focus on how many dollars do people have to buy things. But what are we making? What are we making as individual local communities and what are we making as a broad country? And so while I, I do think there's some utility to pushing on the China issue, I, I do want to broadly get the country, um, you know, folks on the right, especially to think about this question of of being a positive producerist economy. Um, you know, when I when I when I see China, when I when I think about what worries me about China, it's not what's happened in the past. I mean, those are the data points that are easy to point to, but the Chinese are aggressively pursuing an advantage in artificial intelligence, in biopharmaceuticals, in advanced robotics. They have had an explicit policy uh, to go after markets and to go after new technology verticals that no other, I think no other country, especially of their size, can claim to match. And I would like America to do that. I, I you know, I, I really admire the way in which early American economic leaders said, we want this country to be an economic powerhouse. But I think that requires a little bit more aggressive, a more aggressive set of policies for the future. You can't just let that come to you, which is why I'm not quite yet ready to give up on the broader critique of globalization. And I'm not with you on that in the sense of, I think that, and I think I know where you're heading with that is towards a, a, a national industrial policy, which I'm not, I haven't gotten there. But I, but I, my concern there is by taking this, if I were sort of looking at it from your point of view, by focusing on the globalization aspect of it, I think that you, as you've gone through the argument, it does sort of reduce the size of this coalition and the donor base is uncertain, the how you replace the voters is uncertain versus if you go back to a more, you know, the traditional conservative movement and you say, here's why China is different. You know, as I said before, the fusionist idea is we have a preference for free trade. We have a preference for free markets. We have a preference for ordered liberty. But for most of us who have these ideas, it's it's not absolutism at all. When we see that there's an outlier like China, we might be willing to do things to say we have a targeted response of something that we want to do to rectify the situation versus simply saying we want to have a national policy and we want to fight globalization. So I'll sort of shut up for now and let Josiah jump in. Yeah, Let me ask about the role of the think tanks. Uh, this is something that you kind of mentioned in the piece. Sure. 
And, you know, I said earlier that to have a successful political movement, you need to have voters and you need to have money. I did not mention, you know, intellectuals or policy analysts. And and there's a reason for that, you know, even though that even though I work for a think tank or whatever, it's not necessary to have that to be successful, although I think it kind of helps. And I would say, you know, one of my disappointments in the uh, response to the coronavirus outbreak over the past couple months is that some of the thinking and responses on the right have seemed a little stale. Uh, I know when they were discussing, you know, what the relief bill should be, you know, the, there were some folks that came out with, well, well, we should do a payroll tax cut, right? Which yep. in general, I have no problem with the payroll tax cut. I think, you know, if you were dealing with an ordinary recession, that might work. But, you know, when your goal is to try and keep people at home, uh, I don't know that that's, you know, really kind of fitting for the times. But, you know, how do you, obviously, that that is that is a system, you know, the the conservative farm system in magazines and think tanks and institutes or whatever is something that got built up over the course of many decades. How do you how do you rebuild that? You know, what, what would your vision be for how you rebuild that for what the challenges are now and adjust to, you know, this this new post-China and also post-pandemic world where some of the freeness of movement of goods and people is, is you know, probably just it doesn't seem as, as rosy a picture as it might have in, in the past. Yeah, well, f- first, I, I do think that the think tank, the intellectual piece of this is very important, I think, especially given the way that a lot of policy is made on Capitol Hill. Uh, you know, you need people writing the legislation. You need people thinking about you know, when one party is out of power, what do we do when we regain power? Uh, that's really, I think, the role of, of a lot of think tanks. Um, and and I, I will say, you know, th- this is something that has, I think, annoyed some friends, uh, but I've gotten a lot of private messages since my piece came out because a lot of people have, have said, you know, look, uh, we are at least a little bit worried in what we do and how we write and what we say publicly about what the donor response is going to be, about whether the board will support it, whether the leadership will support it, uh, whether we're sort of going too far outside of that Overton window, which, which, as I said earlier, I think is too narrow at the conservative intellectual world. Um, and, and I think that's, that, that is a real problem uh, for, for us in the future. And, and the way that it really bothers me is actually the way that that, that sort of subtle influence manifests itself in young conservatives who want to become think tank fellows, who want to become policy folks on the right, is they sort of know, you know, there are certain things that I, I'm not allowed to say. And so either they, they, they kind of tailor um, certain viewpoints, they cut out certain focuses from what they're writing or thinking about it. You know, one friend of mine who was told explicitly, you can't write about trade because this is too out, far outside the priorities of the organization. Um, it, it affects the, the, the magazine pitches that people make, the types of opinion pieces that they write. And that, that subtle influence, I think, is, is a real problem. Um, you know, my, my view, though, is that you, you just do need an alternative to it. I, I don't think that you can totally replace it. You know, one of the, the more insightful critiques of the piece that I got was, you know, aren't you just trying to take the playbook that worked in the 1970s and 1980s and get it to work in the 2020s? Like, why don't you build more of these institutions at the working class level, whether they're labor unions, church organizations? You know, why can't you build them there? And, and I think, unfortunately, the answer is that those places Either they've been captured by the left. Uh, a lot of the national labor organizations, I think, are just on the, the team of the left, and that's the way it's going to be. I mean, I think more importantly, a lot of those organizations just don't have money. Um, and so I, I do think that the, the pathway here 
is to build some alternative donor institutions, you know, maybe sort of a populist answer to the seminar network uh, that exists on the right, and then to use that network to support some newer projects, some newer organizations, or at least to encourage some some subtle shifts within the old organizations. Um, but but it, it's it's a very it's a very tough question. I don't know that I that I have the answer to it. I, I think there's a very good chance that my 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 fundamental argument that we need a new set of donors to fund a new set of institutions may be both true and impossible. And so, you know, I, I may be swimming against an impossible stream here. But again, I, I think it's necessary. So even if it's very hard uh, to the point of impossible, I think we still have to try to figure out how to do it. Just one point, uh, Josiah, on your comment about uh, not being impressed by the fresh thinking from various think tanks. And I, I, I certainly understand where you are coming from. But one exception to that is I've actually been pretty, and, and this is totally me sucking up, uh, I've actually been pretty impressed with what I've seen from our street. Work such as uh, we just had Ray Lehman on the show talking about pandemic insurance, uh, but also, uh, and I believe he may be an upcoming guest, uh, Caleb Watney, with some ideas on, um, uh, on how we can get some of the necessary uh, medical equipment ready quickly um, through large federal purchase orders. I, I take the point. Yes, definitely. Uh, you know, I- any criticism I make uh, obviously does not apply to our street. or, <laughs> or uh, And I have, you know, there have been, uh, I have been uh, disappointed with the writings of a lot of people over the last couple of months, but there have also been a few people who have really impressed me, uh, including you, JD, uh, you know, some of your writings on covid mega twitter threads or whatever um so it's clear that there is a lot of um fresh thinking that's out there if it can be you know harnessed and organized in some way i don't know yeah and and i you know to to be fair i mean i i'm i'm very close with raihan salam who's the president of the manhattan institute i think they're doing a lot of interesting things i I obviously have an affiliation with ai i think especially yuval levin shop with an ai is doing a lot of interesting things i I don't think that, that that there's a complete lack of of good insightful thinking um but i i do think that What's going on right now is that a lot of people are sort of, you know, again, I think they're playing around the edge of the Overton window. And as they do, I think they're cognizant of the fact that they're bumping up against the edge of it. And, and consequently, um, you know, it's, it, it, it does limit, I think, the overall output, especially in this moment, which is just, I think, calling out for, for pretty radical uh, changes in the way that we've thought about, um, we've, we've thought about public policy. You know, the, 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 there have been, you know, Ovik Roy came out with a really interesting sort of reopening plan um, out, out of out of his organization. You know, Scott Gottlieb and a few folks out of AI have done some interesting things on this question of how do we actually get the economy back up and running while we're still dealing with this this massive pandemic. Um, but I, I've been super disappointed with, you know, to, your, to your point about the payroll tax issue, Josiah, you know, some of the things that Josh Hawley has come out with, which it really are, are relatively mild versions of what Boris Johnson and the UK conservatives have been doing, just immediately getting tagged as you know, this is this is too far outside of the Overton window. This is unacceptable. This is a departure uh, from from the old orthodoxies. But, you know, we're, we're talking about what is it now? Close to 20 million, 22 million people out of work uh, for, for no fault of their own. I, I think this is definitely a time to think big. And unfortunately, 
we do have some institutional pressures against doing that. And just one comment on that. You mentioned uh, the Scott um, Gottlieb uh, piece at uh, AEI. I actually caught that um, uh, John Hopkins incorporated that as part of their recovery plan as well. So they basically took his ideas and then they sort of bolstered it with some of their own. And I thought that was very yep, well done. I, I agree. <laughs> uh, okay. So our guest today has been J.D. Vance. Uh, J.D., thank you very much for joining me. Thanks for having me, guys. Good to talk with you.